Welcome to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Um, very excited about the duo we're talking to today, Margaret Talbot and David Talbot. They have a fantastic new book about lessons from history. And this can sound like a little cheesy. Activists throughout history in the 60s and 70s, what they brought to their movement, some of the dissension, some of the failures, some of the successes, et cetera, et cetera. But they bring a like honesty, unvarnished honesty and truth telling to it that makes it super fascinating. Very excited to talk to them. But I uh, want to start with a few things. So $15 uh, wage has apparently become the answer, surprise, surprise, to uh, businesses that are having trouble getting workers. Turns out, Kyle, according to the Washington Post, that when you pay people a living wage, they actually want to work for you. Yeah, I I have to say, I'm just happy that they're actually reporting that fact. They have a couple of good, I mean, you know, we love Jeff Stein. They have a couple of good economics reporters over at the Washington Post, I will say. But usually, I mean, the usual, like if this was 10 years ago, I feel like they would have just buried this story. You think so? Because I know, like, my mom, for example, watches CNBC. You know what they talk about 24-7 now? Hmm. Oh, my God, inflation. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh. Make sure the federal government doesn't spend a penny on regular people from now until the end of time. Inflation, inflation, inflation. Be afraid. And the whole point of that is to handcuff, you know, Washington for doing anything more. So, you know, that's... I'm happy we're not getting wall to wall that elsewhere. And the fact that they're even reporting on this story makes me happy. Yeah. So they talked to, and this wasn't just like one or two business owners. They surveyed dozens of different business owners who had been having trouble getting workers to apply to these jobs. A lot of them are restaurants. Of course, servers have been worked extraordinarily hard hit during the coronavirus pandemic. Like you're on the front lines, you're making low wages, all of that stuff. And so a lot of those workers have been reassessing whether they even want to be in that industry and going to warehouse work and other lines of work. And um, I'll just, they found that when they went from literally like zero new applications for these jobs to paying people $15 an hour and suddenly flooded with thousands. There was an ice cream shop in Pittsburgh, bunch of restaurants down in Charlotte that they talked to. And the other piece of it that was really interesting, as they said, at some places they had to um, somewhat increase cost. But they talked to some of these owners too who say, actually, we didn't. And in fact, now that we have workers back in and they're happier, so they're more productive, we're actually saving money and doing even better than ever. Yeah, they also, I read a, something about how Chipotle, there were these fear-mongering headlines, Chipotle raises prices after they raise wages. Guess you shouldn't raise wages. It was like 40 cents. Like 40 cents and now somebody actually can live. Can live, yeah. It's like, pff, you sure you want to get rid of the wage slaves, buddy? <laughs> sure you want to be radical like that? Like, yeah, actually, I'm pretty sure about that. And by the way, in that article that you're referencing, I think the headline was, it's not just 15, some places are paying more than 15. So it's like, they said 15 or more. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, you're going to get fucking, of course. It. Listen, if you're not paying a living wage, you can't bitch about people not wanting to work for you. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Right. Like, what if I paid you absolute garbage dog shit? Would you come work for me? <laughs> no, and go fuck yourself. And by the way, yes, you could argue that this is one of the effects of the stimulus checks, but good, good. Like, it's okay to say that's a good thing. It's good to give people, and even people who are checking out of the system now and taking time to reevaluate. Yeah. Good. Yeah. This is totally. one of those things where, like, on Fox News, they're freaking out about it, and they're like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. The workers have agency. Right. Oh, my God. How Get them back they? in. It's like... I don't care. That's a good thing. It's amazing how, like, it takes so little to just bait them into be like, your whole existence should be to serve me and the market gods. Yeah. And make nothing. Or Art Laffer out there, like, poor, poor people and minorities and young people aren't worth, that's his wording, yes. aren't worth $15 an hour. 
Like, that is quiet part out loud if I've ever heard it. All that human beings are to people like Art Laffer and so many others is just, like, cogs to be used and abused by the market system and disposed of when you have no use for them. Soulless economic agents. That, that you know, that's how he views it. And it's funny because their, their view is, the way I look at it is, we need a system that exists for the benefit of the people. So, like, the economy should exist in a way for the benefit of the people. They flip it. They feel like, no. People should be yeah, there you, for the benefit of the market. Yes, you need to yeah. fit into the market. Like, right. some find some way to sort of... Great way of thinking about that, it. That is, that's exactly that's what it. it is. And it's it's really fucking stupid, but it's this mind virus that has taken over this country ever since Ronald Reagan. But it's amazing how deep the rot is because they, like... They think they're, like, keeping it real and it's all common sense, the stuff they're saying. Yeah. Well, let me read you. This is also sort of like the Costco model. Like, that's always been their model is we're going to pay people a little better. We're going to give them decent benefits. And then that's going to be good for our business. Mm -hmm. Of course, Costco has been really successful. But this section of the article, I think, shows you how wrong the typical Art Laffer type thinking about the economy is. So um, one of the groups that raised wages and f had tremendous su success is called Fifth Street Group. Rest it's a group of restaurants, I think, in Charlotte. And they say, while the staff staffing costs have gone up for restaurants in Fifth Street Group, overall sales also increased by a larger proportion. Customer reviews on sites like Open Table have gone up by nearly half a point, too. Better service has translated to more sales and happier customers. And then I love this quote from another um, one of the business owners they talked to. They say, there's a shaming that happens to working class people. Nobody talks about the fact that the economy is going to fall apart when a tech guy gets 195k a year salary with a 5% raise every year or when lawyers are making 300k. This conversation only happens when you're talking about the people who make the lowest wages. And I think as a society, that's just really insulting. Yeah, no, that's a that's a wonderful point. Yeah. I have nothing to add to that. Yeah. I mean, the fact, and it's so true. It's only when you're talking about low wage workers that there's all this like hand wringing about, oh, the whole country is going to fall apart if we give people a living wage. And by the way, $15 an hour isn't even a living wage in large swaths of the country. Yeah. And you're right. In some places, it's not. Um, if you kept up with product, if you paid wages that kept up with productivity, it would be $22 an hour. Yeah. So so those minimum wage workers are productive enough that they're putting out $22 in output in work and they're only getting paid 15. So actually there's an argument that they're paid artificially low. So I mean that's something to think about when they make the argument that like oh these people aren't worth that. Actually you're right, they're not worth that. They're worth more. Yes, exactly right. And exactly right. And remember all of this like our heroes, the essential workers, our yeah, right. heroes. Whatever. Don't pay them fifteen. You know, stop. Like, stop. Yeah. <laughs> Make them get back into the marketplace for seven twenty-five or less if you're talking about tipped workers. Oh, it's it's I can't believe they still have that exception. Ugh. It's like minimum wage, unless you do this, in which case even lower than that. Yeah. Whoa, really? Well, we assume that you're gonna get tips. I don't want you to assume dick. Right. Like, pay me up front. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Um, all right. Let me let me see what you think about this one. U.S. ways possibilities is New York Times. 
waste possibility of airstrikes if Afghan forces face crisis. The Pentagon is considering whether to intervene with warplanes or drones in the event that Kabul is in danger of falling to the Taliban, though no decisions have been made. Goes on to say the Pentagon's considering seeking authorization to carry out airstrikes to support Afghan security forces if Kabul or another major city is in danger of falling to the Taliban, potentially introducing flexibility into President Biden's plan to end the U.S. military presence in the conflict, senior officials said. Your thoughts? No, we're not getting out. That's what that means. That means there's always going to be a caveat. There's always going to be a by the way. There's always going to be the, but what, what happened was, what I meant was, whether it's keeping the contractors there, or in this case, hey, let's keep drones there, or let's keep uh, fighter jets there, or just in case, or whatever, that means we're not getting out. And I think that's terrible. I think we need to get out. And to make this argument of like, well, what are we going to do? We have to do it because the thing and the thing. Last time I checked, somebody in Cleveland wasn't threatened by the Taliban in Afghanistan. There is no argument of imminent self-defense for the United States of America. The Taliban explicitly does not have international ambitions. They're a guerrilla army. That's right. They're not a terrorist organization in the sense, I mean, they are terrorists, but they're not a terrorist organization in the sense that they have the Al-Qaeda mission or ISIS mission of world global jihad. Exactly. Right. They're a, a local militant organization with designs in that right. country that do not imminently threaten us. Do we like the Taliban? Of course not. They're awful and horrific. And yes, like the suffering is 100% real. We never went into Afghanistan to destroy the Taliban. That well, was not the idea. By the way, we've been there. How long were we there for? 20 years? It was 2001 we went there. It's 2021. Yeah. So 20 years we were there. You had 20 fucking years. If you were going to defeat them, why haven't you defeated them yet? Right. What am I supposed to think? Year 23 is going to be a breakthrough or some shit? That's what they, that is what they want you to think. They always are like, well, just push it a little further. Just push it a little further. And we've got, this time we got a plan and et cetera, et cetera. That's the thing they can never explain is like, okay, what, if your goal, if you want to articulate the goal and sell it to the American people of we're going to rid Afghanistan of the Taliban, what's your plan? What's that going to take? What's that going to look like? How many years? How many troops? Et cetera, et cetera. By the way, that's sort of bullshit. That's just really the cover story. I think some people believe it. Like some people who are partaking in the mission believe that. But the fact of the matter is there are other considerations at play. I mean, of Afghanistan course. has trillions of dollars in mineral wealth. A lot of the stuff that's in your phone comes from Afghanistan. We don't want China. We don't want Russia. We don't want somebody else to have access to that because that's basically capital. That's wealth. You know, we are the world's sole superpower. We want to make sure it stays that way. There's also opium in Afghanistan. You know, there's also just the fact that the military industrial complex gets incredibly rich by continuing to do war. You know, all these Raytheon contracts and Boeing and Honeywell and all this stuff. I mean, that this is part of the consideration. The deep state, I know it sounds conspiratorial, but it's real. And these are the people who are there between every administration, whether it's a Democrat or Republican in the White House. You have some people who, for a career, are in D.C. and they're part of the CIA or they're part of the Pentagon or whatever. And when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so they're always like, more, war, more, war, more, war. And maybe they delude themselves and think like, no, we're the good guys. We're the heroes riding right. it to save the day. My ass cheeks are the heroes riding it to save the day. Get the fuck out of there. I mean, we have a we have an infrastructure at home, an infrastructure system that gets a grade of C minus. And we're talking about staying in Kandahar or rebuilding in Kabul. Rebuild fucking Flint, Michigan, bitch. Like fix the water pipes, fix the lead in the water. What are you talking about? 
What are you doing? 25 million Americans don't have health insurance. And by the way, a lot of the ones who do have health insurance have terrible fucking health insurance, and it's just a scam. Fix you, that shit. You know, I, I was just wondering what the angle was going to be, right? Because you knew there was going to be an angle to be like, well, I know we said we're going to get out, and we're really clear about it, but we can't quite do it exactly like we said. And first we get the news like, well, we are going to actually keep some contractors in there, of course. So the whole idea of troops and American boots on the ground being totally pulled out was, you know, is a little bit of uh, a numbers game, right? And now we get this is the other piece of we're still maintaining our interest in this country and we're still committing military resources to this country, which means that the sort of like strategic objective hasn't actually really changed. That's right. Uh, Now, I'm done with serious stuff. Tell me about Dr. Fauci. Oh, God. Okay. Um, Okay. Washingtonian piece about how about like quarantine sex stuff, like how people were dating and making love and having sex and all this stuff during quarantine. The part that caught everybody's eye is there's one dude who says that um, a, a woman that he was with asked if she could call him Fauci during sex. And he said that he just pretended, like, just kept going and pretended that he didn't hear her. There's a lot to unpack there. I, I don't know if I'm buying the story. I got to be honest with you. You think that it sounds like some it, bullshit? It, it sounds, sounds like, a little too perfect. Or like somebody was joking. You know what I'm saying? Like something, something's off. She could have been joking. That can't be a real kink. I don't care who fucking, I don't care who it is. It could be the All most. Right, let me just take the other side for the, for the, for the sake of the discussion. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen the signs around this town that are like, in Fauci we trust and we love Dr. Fauci and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you said with his face is on the is on the sign in people's yards, like people went out and bought these signs and put them in their yards. So I'm not saying it's impossible. I could definitely see. And oh, and and remember back when liberals were obsessing over Andrew Cuomo? And the term Cuomosexual was coined and there were all these articles being written and women like thirsty and lusting after Andrew Cuomo. So I'm going to say it could very well be true. So if it's real, I have an answer. Okay. It's the whole daddy thing. Yes. Yeah. It's people want a figure who they can put like full faith and trust in somebody who's a brave, noble, strong, intelligent leader. Who and always he, has all take, the answers. Gonna take care of you. Gonna take care of you, all that stuff. The only fucking problem is, obviously Cuomo is a complete fraud writing a book about how this is how we defeated COVID in New York City as COVID is not defeated in New York City and you're, you know, hiding the numbers and you got people, you know, ordering people with COVID back into the, the nursing homes and giving everybody COVID and all these people dying. That's Cuomo. With Fauci, listen, the lionization of this guy, you gotta stop. You gotta stop. There's video of him early on in the pandemic, like, masks? You don't need to be wearing those, bro. (laughs) And, you know, he even admitted later on, oh, the reason why I did that, the reason why I said that is because people on the front lines, we wanted them to have the masks. We wanted the nurses and the doctors. So you're admitting you lied. You're admitting, yes, masks are a good thing, but we don't want to tell you because we were afraid there was going to be a shortage. You could have just said, we need to leave them for the nurses and the doctors. At least that would have been fucking honest. Instead, you lied about it. Then you admit you lie about it. And as you're admitting you lie about it, you try to pretend like you're not admitting that you're lying about it. Right. The fuck is, and don't tell me that this is the guy. This is the fucking guy that everybody's looking up to. Just because, listen, everybody, a public service announcement. Just because somebody is an expert or they believe in science 
doesn't mean they are by definition correct about everything. You have to evaluate all the statements and everything they're saying independently on their own merits because that's what you do if you don't have a cinder block where your head's supposed to be. <laughs> right. But unfortunately, a lot of people do, apparently. It wasn't just the masks either. I don't, I, you probably remember this as well. There's still a question about what percentage of either like vaccinated or resistant. Oh, yeah, that's right. People like what percentage of immunity. the, of the country has to have, be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity. There's still a little bit because it's like a range. Nobody knows precisely. It's and he, 85% or and whatever. And he changed it in all the interviews. Yeah. He changed it over mm -hmm. time. And when he got asked, like, OK, well, you said this amount here, which was relatively it was like 60 percent. And now you're saying 80 percent. So what gives? Again, he admitted that he was massaging the numbers to tell people what he thought they, they could yeah. handle hearing right. at that point. And again, he doesn't act like that was lying. He acts like right, he's doing yeah. us a public service by protecting us from the reality that, oh, shit, it's probably more like 90 percent of her to, in order to achieve herd immunity. So it's not your job to, like, massage the facts or spin us in the way that you think is going to be okay for us to be able to handle. It's just your job to like tell us what you know to the best of your ability. And if it's a range, tell us it's a range and that nobody knows for sure. That's that's fine. But when you have people who are held up as trusted public health officials and then you see this type of behavior, it contributes to the horrific, you know, cultural situation that we've had where people have just taken it upon themselves and fed their like pandemic habits and choices through their own like tribal cultural lens and then sort of like really atta got attached to whatever that tribal cultural pandemic lens was because there was no real trusted source of information. Right, of course, yeah. Trump was like the worst actor in mm -hmm. all of this. But the fact that you had someone who was held up, especially by liberals as this like patron saint and then gets caught in these very significant um, misstatements and outright lies is a real problem. And he also was a bad actor on the COVID lab leak theory, had information early on, this was revealed in his emails, that it was in fact possible that this did come from a lab and was saying publicly, you know, no, it pretty definitively that it hadn't come from a lab. So, so yeah, anyway, there are a lot of problems with Fauci as a sex symbol yeah, is basically what this all boils down to. <laughs> if, if you, if you say I'm a scientist or I'm an expert and you say Trump is bad, they're going to put you on fucking Rushmore. They're just going to mm -hmm. look up to you and idolize you and act like you've never done anything wrong. And people would say, hey, Kyle, take it easy a little bit because you got to understand nobody knew what was going on. It was a pandemic. Everybody was ignorant about it. To which my response is, yeah, say that. Say, right. I don't know. Right. Instead of fucking lying and then admit you're lying, but pretend like you're not admitting that you're lying. Like, right. Just grow the fuck up. Like, yes, just tell the public what we actually know. And at a, for a long time, that's very, very limited information. So be it. That's okay. So be it. Would have been it, you way know, better. And everybody would have understood. Hey, we don't know what the fuck this thing is. Here's we don't know what's going on. Here's the evidence on this on. side. Here's the evidence on that side. And the lab leak theory one was interesting, too, because I know you experienced the same thing. The time I covered it and started taking it seriously was when it was either the former head of the CDC or the FDA. I forget which one. I think it was CDC. CDC. Okay. He came out and gave an interview to CNN. And Sanjay Gupta and stuff did the segment afterwards. And he says very clearly, in my expert opinion, granted, I don't have all the evidence right now, but my educated opinion on this is it looks like it's from a lab. 
And, you know, again, Sanjay Gupta came on after and was like, hey, this is serious. This is not some crank, you know, right. fucking far right wing YouTuber or some yeah. shit. Right. And so that's when I started taking serious. Even when I said that, a lot of people in my own audience came after me as if like it, what I'm doing is egregious. I All I did was listen to the segment. I thought it sounded reasonable. And so I said, I'm agnostic, but now I lean more in this direction. I understand why people are angry about that and why they fear that that's the conclusion because they think it's going to be used for a new cold war and they mm -hmm. think it's going to be used for like mili uh, militarization and whatnot. So I get why people are concerned about it, but we have to be willing to separate out the facts of what happened from the political implications. And you can say the following sentence. It's possible it came from a lab or likely it came from a lab. And by the way, you should not use that in any way, shape or form to do a new Cold War to push for more militarization with China because I got news for you. It's not like they did it on purpose. It was a fucking mistake. And the U.S. funded a lot of it. If indeed say, the lab the thing is true, is Fauci US was involved. Was, right. The U.S. was they funded it. that research. So. They funded it. That's right. Yeah, that's uncomfortable. I, I also just think it's fascinating, though, this like persistent yearning you saw then this exists on the right as well obviously like donald trump is perfect manifestation mm. of that desire for the the daddy probably figure. worse on the right yeah yeah probably i mean i don't yeah it probably is worse on the right but you had this just persistent thirst for that daddy figure among a lot of like this like it's very authoritarian 100 percent. that's the type, definition of it type instinct like just give me the guy who's gonna tell me how it is and answer all the questions i'm not gonna have to worry i'm not gonna have to think about it like has that take charge energy like just give me that and you saw that too during the Democrat, like the early phases of the Democratic primary, when there was a flirtation with what was Stormy Daniels' lawyer's name? I'm really oh, happy. Oh, Michael Avenatti. Avenatti. By the way, I'm glad that that wasn't in my head, actually. Pat, pat me on the. I was the very first one to be like, that guy's a fraud. I was, and people, again, this is one of those things where my own audience was like, yeah, but he said the thing. He said maybe he's for Medicare for all and he's on the thing and he bashes Trump. And I'm like, homeboy is a f -f 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 fraud son it's so easy to I smell it from a mile away i get it like i think that this instinct it comes from the sense the legitimate sense that things are extraordinarily unsettled right it's like a very chaotic uncertain system right now and so people people drive towards that like authoritarian figure and it create it does create a very dangerous situation i just think it's sort of revealing with fauci that it's not republicans alone who are vulnerable to that instinct oh, of just yeah, give me no. the daddy who's going to tell me how things are going to be yeah no i and I, I maybe this is just i'm perceiving it more but it certainly feels like it's gotten worse with liberals over time it does feel that way. You know? But, yeah. like, you know, but to be fair, though, maybe we just didn't realize it. Or maybe we were even fucking part of, part of it, it in the early days of Obama. Because <laughs> I was definitely way more partisan back then. I, w I was you know? a Hillary voter in that primary, though. Is that a I don't know. I to mean, be fair, listen, to be fair to you, I was torn too. She was better on healthcare. Well, that's exactly right. The reason why I was torn is because she was running on single payer in 2008. People don't remember that. She was running on single payer healthcare and Obama was not running on single payer healthcare. But the reason I ultimately voted for Obama in the primary is because just before my state voted New York, they were yeah. like, there was this big story that blew up where Obama said, I'll negotiate with anybody without preconditions, including Iran. And Hillary was really attacking Obama for that. Yeah. And I was like, that's the dumbest thing. Of course, I'm on Obama's side for that. And Hillary's way too hawkish. And then you think about the Iraq war and he was against the Iraq war. So ultimately, I went for Obama. Allegedly. I mean, yeah. It, he said, right. 
he said. He, he clearly rhetorically was much better on foreign policy than she was in that. And I'd said that I was a Hillary voter. The truth is, actually, I had my first daughter the day before the Democratic primary in Ohio, where I was living at the time. So technically, I did not vote because I was in the hospital. I just had a baby. So, so why would you say you're a Hillary supporter That's and who I was make support. everybody hate you? I went to like rallies and stuff. I went to a Hillary rally. I went to an Obama rally as well. I went to uh, a Bill Clinton came to town. I also went and saw for the like. Where did he touch you? Entertainment value of it. Well, he was still sharp back then. Like for Where did at he that touch time, you? <laughs> at that time he still like he still had it. Although there were some protesters that heckled him, and that like old man crankiness did come out. Yeah, but Bernie but, rocks that well. Bernie, yeah, Bernie. It's like charming with him. Yeah. Bill, you're just like oh. You're mean. Yeah. I also went to a Sarah Palin thing just to see what that cultural moment was like. Because in Ohio, that was back when Democrats actually had a chance of winning Ohio. It was battleground area and battleground state. So they all came traipsing through there. So anyway. I can't believe you were a Hillary supporter. How am I sitting? Who am I, I, who am I even Obama sitting supporter. next to? It's gross. Of course you know I was an Obama supporter. <laughs> Everybody was sort of a little bit duped by him early on, you know? Not me. No. You were duped by somebody worse. <laughs> Way worse. I wasn't duped. I had my eyes open. But anyway, I was duped in many other ways. Anyway, one more story to get to, which is um, you all probably saw the clip at this point. French President Emmanuel Macron getting slapped in the face by a dude. That dude has now been sentenced to serve four months in jail. Kyle Kalinske, what do you think of that? Well, first of all, I was confused about his background when we were reading about it. One of the things said he was a supporter of the Yellow Vests. If he was a supporter of the Yellow Vests, that would lead me to believe he's left wing and Macron is like this mushy centrist Obama like for neoliberal dude. Yeah, neoliberal dude, yeah. corporatist in France. Um, but then the more we looked into it, the more it was clear. He's actually very clearly right wing. Yeah. He did the like French royalist or monarchy chant. And he also they found like a Hitler book at his place. So, right? OK, so I, I have to I gave you a little bit of misinformation there. OK. Upon further reading. So there was another man who was also arrested and he's the one who had the copy of Mein Kampf and the like, like other Nazi stuff. Um, but the guy who slapped Macron, yeah, he. I like the way he, you say that. He heard shouting. <laughs> I heard shouting. Montjoie Saint Denis. I think the army's battle cry when France was still a monarchy. He said it's a patriot slogan, and he described himself as having far right-wing views. So apparently he's part of what he's described as the royalist right. Like they want France to be a monarchy again, I guess. I don't know. I Somebody, some French listener needs to fill me in on all of these different distinctions and nuances. But anyway, he seems right-wing. So what do you think of, but that's sort of irrelevant to the, yeah. the jail term and the sentencing. So what do you think of that? First of all, if this guy was in the U.S., he would have been shot by Secret Service on the spot. I think that's very clear. You think so? I do. And then I also think if he wasn't, which he would have been, but if he wasn't, he would have gotten a longer sentence because they would have booked it as assault. And or like threatening the life of the president or something. Is that like its that. own that thing? I, I think even, it is. Well, either way, it would have been a lot tougher in the U.S. Um, I actually don't know what I think of the sentence because, yes, the guy definitely shouldn't have done it. Definitely is illegal and should be illegal. Um, but it... <sighs> I don't know, because a slap in different contexts means so many different things, which is almost like why the whole concept of the law is difficult, because you can't treat every slap the same. If I'm playing basketball with my buddy and I piss him off or he pisses me off and he gives me a slap, 
even if it's even if it's somewhat aggressive, it's like I'm not going to send you to prison for four months. That's fucking crazy. Granted, this is not that context. So again, the context matters and this is not that context at all. But I don't know what I think the proper punishment is. I really don't. I'm actually, this one really stumps me. So in the U.S., threatening the life of the president is a class D felony and it's punishable by up to five years in prison, a $250,000 maximum fine, $100 special assessment, and up to three years of supervised release per Wikipedia. It's tougher, yeah. So, yeah, it is tougher. And I think they would probably hit hit him with something like that. Like, they would definitely throw the book at him, for sure. Yeah, like, so, and there, I mean, listen, it's terrible. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. But there are plenty of parents who, like, slap their kids. Well, and I mean, Macron was clearly not in any real danger. We say that now in retrospect. Yeah. I agree with you. He wasn't in any real danger. And that's why it's like I kind of grant permission people if you want to laugh at it now, you're allowed to laugh at it. Yeah. But like at the time, we didn't fucking know that. So I'm a much harsher judger in the moment because it's like, we don't know what the fuck that guy's doing. He could have a knife on him. He could have a gun on him. He could fucking slit his throat. We don't fucking know. Yeah. It is kind of wild. That he was able to get that close. Macron walked right up to him and he had his people around him and he was just like... Oh, this was another funny detail. Hold on, let me find this. Apparently, he... He had, said Fauci's name during sex. Yeah, that was the <laughs> other part. Is he had... Um, yeah, he had a, a, a Fauci tramp stamp. And so he was really into that. Um, <laughs> Fauci-gasm. <laughs> um, so he had considered throwing an egg or a cream tart at the president, which strikes me as like a uniquely French kind of an Cream assault. tart? <laughs> Fuck out of here. Give me some toaster strudel like an American. A cream tart. Toaster strudel's the best. I wish he'd thrown a cream tart at him because that would have been... I don't even know what that is, Crystal. I know I the word cream like, and I know the word tart. I don't know what it's like I together. Put it together and you can kind of imagine what it might be. I don't know. Some weird ass French shit. Yeah. Anyway, so that's all I know about that. Anyway, I wish we had their healthcare system. <laughs> Bottom line. We can end the story now. Bottom line. <laughs> um, okay, guys. I We've been working on getting this interview for a while. Um, very excited to talk to Margaret Talbot and her brother, David Talbot. So David's founder and former editor-in-chief of Salon. He His sort of specialty is digging into what he calls hidden history. Like he's very, very focused on American power and the cabals that have run the country. He's the, the CIA's we, worst nightmare. CIA's worst nightmare. He's the CIA's yeah. worst nightmare. This so time. his book that um, actually inspired me to reach out to try to get him on is called The Devil's Chessboard, Tracks History of the CIA, Alan Dulles, Who Really Killed JFK? We're definitely going to ask him about all of that. And he has a new book that he wrote with his sister, Margaret, who's a staff writer at The New Yorker and also an author in her own right. She wrote a book called The Entertainer Movies, Magic, and My Father's 20th Century. So they wrote this new book, um, which is fascinating. You got it? By the Light of Burning Dreams. And uh, just go through some of the really intricate, really significant history of these activist movements and not in like a Disney way, like in a real way. Right. Um, with the characters involved and what were the successes, what were the failures, etc. Very excited to speak with them. Without further ado, here are David and Margaret. Um, Margaret and David, thank you so much for being with us. Congrats on the book. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, of course. Margaret, just tell us a little bit why you wanted to write this book at this moment. 
Yeah, well, you know, it, it was David's project to begin with, and he can tell you a little bit about how I um, ended up stepping into it. Um, I'm his younger sister, and uh, we're both journalists, of course, and uh, have been writing for a long time. David was signed up to do this book and actually um, had a stroke. Um, and he, as as you will see, doing very well. But um, at the time, having done a bunch of interviews with some leading activists, who um, some of whom are no longer with us, and some of whom are, but they were wonderful, kind of one-of-a-kind interviews, he didn't want them to go to waste. He wanted to do the book. And um, so he asked if I would help out. And um, so I stepped in to do it and was really thrilled to. I really um, was interested at this moment of kind of revived activism um, in revisiting the 1960s and 70s um, social movements, which were um, led by, as we say in the book, many, many um, flawed but visionary and bold uh, uh, men and women. And um, we wanted to see what lessons we could draw from, from those movements, from movements today, what inspiration and what cautionary tales as well. So, um, big picture for me, what did the revolutionary movements of the 1960s and 1970s get right, and what did they get wrong? You want to have a go at that first, David? Yeah, I I think uh, what we were really keen on really drilling down on was the not just general profiles of these various men and women, but looking at turning points, decisive moments in their lives when uh, it really changed their own lives and the course of American history. So what did they get right? Well, Margaret and I make an argument, although we don't subscribe, as we say in the introduction to the great man theory of history, we do believe that leadership the right kind of leadership is uh, essential. And today, of course, there's an anti-leader kind of bias, and we understand it. Uh, you know, tragically, some of these leaders were even assassinated. So you would hear young activists on the streets in Minneapolis and Portland and other places over the last year say, you know, we know what happens to leaders. They kill them. So uh, there's a reason, you know, I, I think that younger people are uh, – you know, cynical, I think, about leaders today. And of course, we know that a lot of these leaders, as you said, Crystal, uh, we're not, it's not hagiography, our book. We look at them warts and all. And these were flawed human beings, these leaders. And yet they were visionary and courageous. You know, Martin Luther King said it took a crazy kind of courage to do what he did. Every day his life was a danger. And of course, he was finally assassinated himself in 1968. And uh, so, Number one, I think leadership is important. It's important to hold movements together. It's important to give movements a sense of direction and inspiration. And uh, I think our book makes an argument for that. Number two, I think uh, really important what they got right is coalition building. You know, John Lennon is, uh, and Yoko are in our one of our chapters are the sort of the main characters. They were hanging out in Greenwich Village with the Black Panthers, with Kate Millett, the uh, well-known 
uh, feminist critic and author, um, with Jerry Rubin and Stu Albert and Abby Hoffman, who were yippies, uh, and many other uh, movement figures at the time. They were not in isolation, these people. Uh, Martin Luther King called up Bobby Seale from the Black Panthers and said, would you join my March on Washington, the Poor People's March in 1968? And, you know, many people thought the Panthers thought Martin Luther King was an Uncle Tom, was a sellout. But no, Bobby was said he was honored to get that phone call. He told me uh, in an interview, and he readily agreed to join Martin's uh, march on Washington, which tragically he, uh, of course, could not lead because he was assassinated in Memphis. So, uh, you know, coalition building solidarity between groups, that's another important lesson. Yeah, and I would just add, I, I think also there's a perennial debate in social justice and progressive movements about, um, you know, working inside or outside the system. And I think we, you know, we think of, of a lot of the 60s movements as being quintessentially outside the system, out in the streets protesting, and they certainly were. But, you know, we found um, in both the chapters on the Panthers and the chapter on Tom Hayden and others that, you know, a lot of these leaders also sought um, um, electoral, uh, you know, power, went, went wanted to work through electoral politics, wanted to, to be inside as well. And, you know, it sounds like an obvious thing, but it's really true. You need to be working in all of these channels. And I think there was more understanding of that than we sometimes give credit to, um, uh, to the 60s movements for having um, and doing. So they were building alternative institutions, doing some, some amazing things underground, but they were also, um, you know, working above ground through more um, mainstream institutions and electoral politics. David, if you would dig into the the um, piece on the Black Panthers, because one of the things that you lay out is actually sort of a tension between Seal and some of the other leadership about that coalition building piece. Just talk about some of what you uncovered. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was intrigued to, to know that there was uh, great tensions, of course, within the Panthers over this question. Uh, the Panthers were, as an organi uh, organization, explicitly not racist. They wanted to work with white radicals, with uh, people from across the, the spectrum. And that was very important to the Panther ideology. And Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, Eldridge Cleaver, all the main leaders of the Black Panther Party all shared that. And I think that was an important uh, uh, direction, particularly at a time when the Nation of Islam and other groups were taking a more separatist path. Uh, but there was some dissension over whether or not how mainstream they should become. Bobby Seale, as Margaret was saying earlier, uh, thought that the Panthers had to uh, pivot from guns confronting, uh, you know, racist cops on the streets of Oakland with guns in a legal manner. Uh, they'd read the law. They knew what they could do as they observed police and confronted them. Um, but uh, Bobby thought they had to pivot away from that. That was going to, he thought, capture the imagination and the attention of the black community. And it did, obviously, uh, when they marched on Sacramento, the, the state capital, with guns to protest a law that was directed at them, not at white militias. Um, but he knew they had to pivot from that to electoral politics. And Bobby himself ran for mayor of Oakland in 1973. And that was very important to Bobby. Bobby said he was motivated more by the declaration Declaration of Independence and the Constitution as ideologies than any foreign ideology, despite the Panther rhetoric. So I think the Panthers were headed in a very interesting militant and yet very mainstream in some ways direction. Unfortunately, uh, we talked about the, lot, the government 
repression that directed at the Panthers. Uh, they were jailed. They were beaten. They were, you know, assaulted by police. Um, and so they were under constant pressure from the government, from police agencies. And then, of course, they had their own dissension within the organization, unfortunately. Huey Newton as, uh, was a charismatic leader, helped put the Panthers on the map, but he descended into drug addiction and criminality uh, to Bobby Seale's great uh, dismay. And they had been brothers. Uh, they had started the Panthers together. And then he saw Huey, uh, in part because of all the government and police harassment, and being put in isolation in prison. It really changed, I think, Huey, that kind of treatment that he had. In any case, the Panthers, because of these internal conflicts and the, and the repression from without, we saw the movie uh, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah about Fred Hampton, the charismatic young black, black panther. Uh, in Chicago and how he was murdered in his bed while he was sleeping by police agents, a death squad, essentially, sent by the government uh, and the FBI. So, uh, you know, this was uh, in some ways enormously heroic that these people withstood this kind of constant uh, harassment and violence from the government. So there's a million things I want, like I was taking notes as you guys were talking and I was like, I want to respond to that. I want to respond to that. I want to respond to that. I got like 50 things, but let me try to pick one of all the things. Um, it's interesting that at the time there was a lot of very strong disagreement within the movement. And you reminded me of young Malcolm X calling Martin Luther King Jr. a sellout and an uncle Tom. And I was wondering if, do you see modern day parallels to that that, you know, make you feel like, well, this is the problem here because we're not focusing on coalition building and instead people who generally have the same goals are sniping at each other relentlessly? Margaret, why didn't you go? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> that is a, a problem that I think is kind of endemic to these movements. And unfortunately, we don't, uh, they don't always learn from the past. But, um, but yeah, the sort of emphasis on ideological purity and on who um, is, is, is the pure um, is something that you saw a lot in the 60s and 70s. And unfortunately, you see it now. And maybe in certain ways, it's even easier to call people out and reject them uh, because we can do it online. And, um, you know, there's that kind of mob mentality you sometimes see a little bit online um, uh, of ganging up on people who might, you know, seem to be uh, dissenting from what from a, from a party line. So I do think there that that's always something that these movements have to worry about. That we who care about these movements have to worry about um, is is this uh, kind of purging in the name of ideological purity. Um, because also, you know, I think coalitions don't have to last forever. They can come together over certain issues and be very effective um, mm. as long as they don't become fractious and fissured during that time. And you don't have to be, you know, yoked to, to them forever. And so I think if, if people can think about that too, um, you know, the if I and, and I think actually we saw that last year in a very effective and inspiring way in the Black Lives Matter demonstrations last summer, which really um, were, you know, were, were happening not only in cities, but in rural areas and, and, and bringing in, uh, you know, uh, young people in particular of um, many races and backgrounds, 
white, black, and and many other uh, many other groups represented. So, I, I I feel like there are moments when people um, set aside <laughs> some of this um, this this purge purging mentality of ideological purity seeking and are able to come together around a coalition and uh, and if they realize it's it it, can, it it's it's it can be temporary and still be effective that's perhaps a positive lesson to to learn from the past and 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 from other successful movements um, yeah David take us inside some of the debates that were going on at the time about both the morality and the utility of political violence as a tactic well, that was a key, of course, discussion within the Black Panther organization, as I was saying earlier, when to use guns. Uh, Bobby Seale was very, uh, you know, very uh, definite about the use of guns only in self-defense and uh, never to attack people uh, for the sake of attacking them uh, in an offensive way, but to only use them in self-defense. You know, people uh, said Martin Luther King was too pacifist and, of course, was following the Gandhian principles of nonviolent resistance. And yet he himself, uh, his own home, was filled with guns. Someone said it looked like an arsenal because Hmm. he received so many death threats. He said he wasn't going to have his family, uh, you know, suffer that victimization. So Martin himself understood that you had to use guns. There's an amazing book uh, by a SNCC. a former civil rights activist in the South called, uh, you know, this uh, nonviolence will get you killed. And it was, you know, he's quoting a Mississippi farmer. A lot of the white and black volunteers who went South, these young people, and we write about this, uh, particularly in uh, the chapter that Margaret wrote on uh, the women of Jane, the Jane Collective and Heather Booth. This was the underground abortion collective in Chicago. And Jane, I mean, Heather Booth started her uh, sort of political career in the South as a young woman volunteering in Mississippi during the Freedom Summer Drive. And uh, those people were under constant threat of violence from uh, the Klan, from sheriffs uh, who were associated with the Klan, and and just armed white vigilantes. Um, And so they realized if for their own protection, they needed to arm themselves. So this became, I think, a running debate within the left, uh, you know, throughout the period. When do you use guns? When is it legitimate to use guns to defend yourself and so on? And frankly, I think we're seeing that uh, come up again today. Um, After the George George Floyd protests last year, there was a a surge uh, in gun ownership. And a lot of those people buying guns were people of color, Uh, you know, African-Americans and Latino-Americans who felt threatened uh, for good reasons. We now have a situation, unfortunately, in this country where we have white militias who are very heavily armed and white nationalists who are very heavily armed. And uh, when, when to use guns, if you use guns at all, that's become a question again that I think we have to uh, resolve. So uh, on that point, I actually find this, actually this discussion find this particularly interesting. Um, when it comes to violence, the thing that I always thought, and I don't know how lazy this thought is, but nonetheless, it's what I thought, that you know, violence is only okay for self-defense reasons. But then I remember listening to something from Noam Chomsky, and he made this fascinating point where he says, actually, no, for example, if you're somebody who happens to be near a bunch of tanks that are on their way to Vietnam, where you know they're going to be used to kill landless peasants, if you blow up that tank and nobody else gets hurt, is that immoral? 
And that made me stop and go, that definitely doesn't seem immoral to me. In fact, that seems moral. So, and then of course, like, like you were alluding to, you, you know, you get to the question of property violence after you police murder an unarmed black person. And we could go on and on all day. When is violence justified and when is it not? Is it too pessimistic of me to say that, like, I don't know if the left is ever going to agree on this? Well, boy, it's this is a. a I don't think we agree on it <laughs> between us. I mean, I, right. I, I don't have a problem with property destruction um, I, in the same way at all. But I am, I consider myself. A, a, a very nonviolent person. And I, I'm wary about, um, I mean, I think American gun culture is such a, is such a damaging and corrosive and, and, and tragic, you know, aspect of our, of our society. Um, so I, so the idea, I understand the, 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 um, the fears of, of people of color who, who want to arm themselves and, and, and the concerns and, and, and what you're saying, David, about, uh, uh, about, you know, these heavily armed, uh, white supremacists. But I, I, I fear, um, a reaction that, that calls for equal arming on the other side. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, 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 I know where it's coming from, but I, Yes, Mark and I have this discussion too. I, I want to say, by the way, that I'm more in line with Marcus on thinking of this myself. And I've argued with young activists who want to get guns and, and, and told them that I think that will only increase the spiral of violence in our country. Uh, I'm for democratic, peaceful action. Uh, and uh, But I do, as Margaret was saying, understand the uh, the fears and anxieties of people who feel they do need to get guns. Now, here's another question, a moral question that came up for us during the book. Bill Zimmerman, who was kind of like the zealot of the new left, he was everywhere. He was in the South uh, registering voters. He was in Washington, D.C. during Nixon trying to shut down the Capitol uh, because of the Vietnam War. He flew airplanes over a wounded knee when the Indians there were besieged by the federal government and dropped supplies to them because they were starving because of the being encircled by the federal forces. Um, and so Bill, at one point, ran an organization that shipped medical aid to Vietnam during the war. And, uh, and he was doing that legally. But then he did something that it was it would have been illegal if they'd found out. He, uh, uh, some doctors uh, developed a kind of penicillin that didn't need to be refrigerated and mm. was, it could be used on the battlefield to help save soldiers' lives who were wounded. And he got that uh, penicillin, uh, this antibiotic, and took it to Paris and gave it to the North Vietnamese so they could save soldiers uh, who were fighting against the U.S. troops. And so he saved the lives of, you, uh, of North Vietnamese soldiers, who then later, I'm sure, a number of them killed U.S. soldiers. Uh, he could have been put on trial for treason for that. Uh, I believe that was the right thing to do. Uh, it was a moral decision that he took. Um, and uh, as I say, by U.S. law, you've been uh, branded a traitor. And yet I do think that was the correct step for him to take. Uh, so this is what's so fascinating about our book and about each chapter our book, that each one of these people had to make a huge moral decision at some point that changed their lives and changed the life of the course, as we say, of American history. Uh, Heather Booth, deciding as a student, a young woman in Chicago, with children at that time, uh, to risk her own life and career 
by uh, doing illegal abortions before Roe v. Wade. Margaret can talk more about that because she did uh, extensive interviews with those women. Um, at some point, all of these people took some heroic action that was important for the course of American history in their own lives. And that's what I say makes the book so dramatic. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I mean... I mean those emotional leaps that people have to take to do those too and thinking about the impact on their own lives their own families yeah i mean I, it's just such a paradox and it's such a conundrum and it's endlessly fascinating and you know we could think about it forever and unfortunately not move any closer to real hardcore answers but you know as you were talking i was reminded of south africa during apartheid uh, there was a lot of violence happening in the streets and that allowed Mandela to sort of be the voice of reason and be more nonviolent. And so then you had this like good cop, bad cop dynamic that ended up working. So you think about that and you go, is the bad cop part sort of like necessary in order to get, you know, the change that's needed. But anyway, we could go on about that forever. Crystal. Well, I'd actually, I'd be, I'd love to hear your reflections on that, whether that was a dynamic that you think played out during the era that you describe as the second mm. American revolution. Do you think that that's, you know, the right way of thinking about things or is that sort of also, also morally bereft or factually inaccurate? I mean, I think it is an inevitable engine of history, you know, kind of whether it's morally right or not. I, I think that is the way change historically has happened, that there are groups that are willing to go out and do something more extreme and that there are groups that are willing to say we are the reasonable alternative to them. And that is one way that social mm. change advances. Um, and you can, you know, sort of debate the individual um, steps that the people on the extreme end took. And, you know, it's sort of a case-by-case -case thing, but that is, I think, a mechanism that change happens by. Yeah. But let's talk about, again, another specific from the book, Wounded Knee, the American Indian Movement stand in 1973. They had guns there. They decided they needed, uh, and it was a motley collection of guns, but they were surrounded by overwhelming firepower from Nixon's federal forces, from vigilantes uh, who wanted to kill them, uh, from guys. It was militarized police uh, presence. Uh, and it, it didn't begin Standing Rock or other uh, occupations or protests that we know about today. It started years ago, this kind of militarized response to peaceful protest. So there were some 200 uh, Native warriors and, and children and women and older people who occupied wounded knee on the on the Pine Ridge River Reservation, South Dakota in 1973. And as I say, they were immediately surrounded. It was a it was a protest, but a peaceful protest at the site of a massacre that had occurred uh, in 1890 of the Lakota of some 300 American Indians uh, by uh, the troops from George Custer's regiment. And uh, this was a peaceful protest, but immediately they uh, escalated the federal forces uh, under Nixon's command. And uh, two Indians were killed because they sustained 500 rounds of incoming firepower from, uh, mm. you know, these government troops. Amazingly, only two Indians were killed. But, um, you know, I, I interviewed a guy who was head of security there, Don Cuny, and he said the fact that they had a, couple, a few rifles and one, you know, one assault rifle was enough to hold off them from invading the camp and killing everybody, they felt another massacre was, would have occurred. So he made the argument they should have done the same thing at Standing Rock. Now, Dennis Banks, who was leader of the American Indian Movement, 
was at both Wounded Knee and Standing Rock. I interviewed mm-hmm. Dennis before he died in 2017. And he told the, the warriors at Standing Rock that he was supported their peaceful uh, strategy, that they confronted uh, their own you know, militarized police who were attacking them with rubber bullets, with tear gas, with clubs, with only with prayer. They never fought back violently. And so Dennis, by that point in his life, felt that that was the right strategy. Even Russell Means, his partner, who also co-founder of the American Indian Movement, Russell was known as the militant guy, the tough guy. And he, in his autobiography before he died, said that peaceful protest was the only way. So that's what I've come to believe. I think that Dennis and Russell made the right decision, ultimately. Um, Even the few guns they had at Wounded Knee were not allowed at Standing Rock. There were no weapons allowed in that camp. I was there. Uh, I went with my son, and I was stayed there for a few days. And it was explicitly and and very uh, uh, strongly uh, peaceful, uh, despite, as I say, this kind of militarized response they were getting. And I believe that that's what Martin Luther King, he, he knew that there was going to be violence directed at them. He risked his own life every day of his life. They, he was attacked during marches in Chicago and Selma and so on. They were bloodied off in the protesters. He knew he was putting even children in Birmingham in harm's way by calling them out onto the streets. But he thought that that violence would somehow purge the American soul and lead to our salvation as a country. And unfortunately, I think the only way that that uh, is true, that America moves forward, is through bloodshed often. Mm. Yeah, that, I think that, that, that true? people putting their bodies on the line is, is, is uh, unfortunately, as you say, something that, 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 that moves history forward. Um, but that moral fortitude of resisting nonviolently is what is a form of strength, and it is what creates lasting respect and, um, uh, you know, respect for those movements and ability for those movements to inspire future generations. Yeah, well, the issue is, of course, you know, the the game is always anytime there's a movement that gains traction for change is to demonize that movement. And so when you introduce violence to the situation, it becomes very easy to demonize. And I believe that even with, you know, there was some actual violence, mostly property destruction, though, in the George Floyd pro- protest. And I think the right wing used that. And by the way, a lot of, you know, corporate Democrats, in my opinion, have used some of that as well to try to discredit not just the movement, but the goals and the objectives of that movement as well. David, I'd, I'd love for you to reflect on um, some of the specific examples of bad decision making, things that went awry, notable failures that you uncovered in your book as well, because those are just as important to learn from. Sure. Well, I, as I say, I think it's very hard to be in a leadership position to be under that kind of constant pressure from police and government agencies. Um, You know, a lot of these movements, even the most disciplined ones, were torn apart by infiltrators from the FBI and police agencies who uh, were were set into uh, these organizations to sow paranoia and fear and distrust among members and often uh, resulted in uh, people being killed, innocent people. Uh, That was the case in the the American Indian movement, tragically. Uh, Young 
young woman who was an activist was uh, set up uh, and by the FBI, and uh, they convinced uh, members of the American Indian Movement she was a spy and an informer. And indeed, uh, AIM was infiltrated by thousands of, of police agents and informers. And suspicion fell unfairly on her. Anime Aqua shows her name. And she was uh, found dead with a bullet in the back of her head. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think some low-level AIM uh, you know, warriors were arrested later and, and ultimately put on trial. But they never really figured out who ordered it, who the top people were. And so this was the, uh, I think, organization sometimes did buckle under the pressure from the FBI, the counterintelligence program that J. Edgar Hoover, who was the notorious head of the FBI, launched against the left and left-wing organizations. Um, and sometimes I think these groups did fall prey to paranoia, uh, to distrust, and to violence, and eliminated members of their own organization uh, in a tragic way. And I think that was one, one example of that. Yeah, so, and I think um, also, oh, go, go ahead. ahead, Margaret. Sorry. No, I was going to say another example is is um, in our chapter, which was actually uh, written by my husband, Arthur Allen, who's a journalist, about Cesar Chavez. Um, Cesar uh, Chavez used this technique of, of, of fasting um, as, as a form of protest and organization where he would go on these lengthy hunger strikes himself. And it was very effective in terms of um, drawing attention to the movement and to his willingness to make these these tremendous personal sacrifices. But he became rather, towards the end of his um, leadership at the UFW, rather paranoid. And kind of um, that paranoia was fueled a lot by this sort of martyrdom complex that he developed partly through the tactic of, of, of fasting. And um, he became more isolated. He became more... Um, uh, he got involved in some sort of uh, cult-related um, community-building exercises that were very uh, damaging to the to the movement. Um, so you know, I, it, I, I, and and as David says, this is often um, kind of a response, a paranoid response to 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 very real infiltration and harassment. Um, but it but it, it is certainly something to guard against uh, in future movements. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Craig Rodwell and the gay pride movement. Yeah, um, Craig Rodwell is one of the sort of less lesser known uh, characters in our book. A lot of a lot of people in the book, you know, John Lennon and Yoko Ono and Tom Hayden and Cesar Chavez and and, and the Black Panthers are much uh, much better known. Um, he was a guy though who did something very interesting. He um, opened the first gay bookstore in the world. It was in New York in the late sixties, um, and it was called the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop. And he really wanted it to be a community center. He'd actually been raised as a Christian scientist in Chicago, and he liked the old model of the Christian Science Reading Room, where people would sort of gather in a bookstore and talk and organize and read and think. 
together. And so he wanted his bookstore to be that way. Um, and it, and, and it was, and it became this kind of locus of activity, but beyond that, um, what he did that was, that was quite interesting is, um, he was present at the Stonewall, um, riots when Stonewall uprising, let's say when, um, when, when the patrons of the Stonewall bar, uh, refused to go along with the, uh, raid by the police that, uh, was aimed at them simply because they were, um, uh, gay and lesbian and trans people. Um, and, um, he saw that as an important turning point. So there, there had been, um, um, these kind of uprisings before at bars and restaurants where, um, LGBTQ people congregated. Uh, but he saw this as, as a real moment to commemorate, to frame as a turning point. And so he, uh, was, Kind of instrumental spearheaded the first um what became the, the the pride parade but the the first commemoration of the stonewall um uh uprising which was a big march in new york a year after the original uh night of stonewall and um that really um just was a was a huge turning point in the visibility of the um of the gay movement. Um, so he was, he, he, he was an interesting guy in that he, his leadership kind of consisted of seeing, um, the historic importance of something that not everybody grasped at the time. That's really interesting that he, he saw how to turn this into a focus of attention and a kind of a turning point in the battle. When, you know, when you look back on these things, you feel like they were just inevitable. Like, of course, everyone was going to see it that way. But he had the vision to say, no, this is the one we can hold up and really use to make a change. Um, David, as you were talking about the FBI infiltration and the way that that really tore a lot of these movements apart, um, as you were watching the Black Lives Matter protests unfold over the summer, were you seeing any echoes of the sort of tactics that were deployed in the 60s and 70s? Do you think that the FBI has reformed and changed their ways? What do you see there? No, I'm, I'm afraid not. I, I distrust <laughs> the FBI today as much as I do under J. Edgar Hoover. The FBI is set up to, I think, uh, surveil and harass, uh, you know, protest movements. Now, finally, uh, the white militia groups that uh, should be, I think, surveilled and should be brought to justice, I think, are getting some attention because the Biden administration uh, is directing the FBI to do that. But... Uh, you know, I think I tell my own sons, I tell young people around right the streets, unfortunately, for medical reasons, I can't be in the streets anymore, like I used to. But, uh, you know, you should, uh, you know, have a healthy suspicion that anyone who's standing next to you throwing rocks or doing something violent, uh, they could be provocateurs. Um, that's how the police and the FBI operate. Uh, they often do uh, infiltrate movements, they still do today. Um, and so, you you have to you know, uh, be suspicious that every third or fourth person is a police agent, unfortunately, on the street with you. Uh, now, that said, uh, when you talk about the torching and trashing of the police headquarters in Minneapolis, I do think that, uh, as we were saying earlier, the destruction of property uh, in that case, I think uh, immediately after the uh, the killing, the police killing of George Floyd was completely understandable and something that I could even support and frankly see that myself doing. You know, I was a young militant and I did some uh, uh, violent things on the streets when I was protesting the war in Vietnam. And I went to jail uh, for blocking uh, a draft board 
which, you know, some people would say is a criminal, uh, even violent action. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the militant actions that I took and my brothers and sisters and others took. This book, in some ways, uh, grew out of my own kind of uh, feeling of solidarity for those times. And for me, as a youthful activist, I don't want to, like, uh, you know, as so many other people ever grow out of those feelings of outrage. And I think I see so many young people today, including my own sons, including uh, Margaret's kids, and we dedicate the book, by the way, to our four children who feel that same sense of outrage about the future, about the future that's being den denied them. You know, I, I'm in some ways more outraged today than I was back when I was in my 20s. When it comes to climate change, when it comes to this resurgent armed uh, white uh, sort of nationalist movement that we talked about, when we talk about Republican kind of sabotage in Washington, how you can't get anything through uh, the Senate under... Suppression of voting rights. Yeah, suppression of voting rights, reproductive rights, all the battles we still have to fight. You know, when you go back and read the Black Panthers 10-point platform that Huey Newton and uh, Bobby Seale wrote over 50 years ago, it's, it's both inspiring and dismaying because of how far short still we fall into their goals and then to police violence in the community. That was one of their points of the Tim Bart platform, turning point platform. Uh, yeah, and then to Jim Crow justice and the uh, mass incarceration of, uh, of black Americans. Uh, they called for that. Uh, uh, reparations for slavery, uh, equal access to housing, good housing, employment, and so on, education. These are still things that we're fighting for in this country uh, over 50 years later. So I understand uh, young people's sense of frustration and anger, uh, and I feel it myself. So uh, to contradict myself from earlier, I brought up the apartheid South Africa situation and how there was like the good cop, bad cop thing going on, and that helped lead to change. But to contradict myself... Um, there was also a study that came out relatively recently. This academic researcher looked into the civil rights movement and he found that the pacifism and the nonviolence of the civil rights movement worked. And the reason why was that when sort of apolitical, moderate white Americans saw the racist Alabama police beating the hell out of innocent black people who were being peaceful, that's when public opinion shifted. And so you brought up the torching of the police station there. And it reminded me that in that in that exact time frame, that's when support for, for BLM went from like 80% or something, and it plummeted down to like, whatever it is really low it was like around 30 or something like that. So how do you respond to that? Because I, I understand that, you know, in the moment, it feels like just to do something like that. But if the long term consequences are like complete, uh, the public turns on it, and that actually is not good in the long run, how would you return? How would you respond to that? Well, I, I don't think it matters what lefty writers like me, white, old white guys are going to tell people on the streets, frankly. Uh, I think no matter what I write, I'm not influencing people who are furious about one more police killing, one more police killing at one after the next, even during the George Floyd, the trial of uh, Chauvin, the cop who killed uh, Floyd. I mean, there was another police killing and one after that. Uh, so, I mean, it just the systemic violence of the police against people who protest 
I guess people of color is is just outrageous, and and it's become now I think uh, you know uh, a focus of so much anger for legitimate reasons. So not no matter what I say about yeah, don't torch this building in a scolding way. I mean, you know, frankly, it's going to happen, and uh, it should happen as long as I think uh, police are going to keep killing black people. I'm sorry, but that's the way I do feel. Uh, now, look, as in terms of the civil rights movement, again, let's not uh, sugarcoat it. People should read this book by Charles Cobb that I mentioned earlier. This nonviolent stuff will get you killed. It was a quote from an a older black Mississippi farmer who was heavily armed, had shotguns. And a lot of these farmers in the South had guns. And the white kids who went down there, like Heather Booth, who we profile in the book, did so and were protected by black people with guns. And they knew they couldn't come in and kill everyone because black people had guns. We saw what happened in Tulsa. An entire community wiped out, wiped out through black, uh, through white uh, vigilante uh, violence. And uh, that kind of violence was stopped in some cases by black people who are heavily armed. Robert Williams, who wrote a book called Negroes with Guns, was head of the NAACP in North Carolina. And at one point they came to lynch uh, the, uh, one of the black civil rights leaders in that community. And they knew they were coming. The Klan was coming with guns. And so the, uh, a number of black people who were World War II veterans, by the way, and knew how to use guns, armed themselves and uh, drove them away. Uh, without killing anybody, but through firing their weapons at them. Um, that's what it took, unfortunately. Even the so-called peaceful civil rights movement was armed. And so this is a, a, a ugly reality of American life. As H. Rap Brown said, violence is American as cherry pie. Margaret, reflect on, so this period, the 60s and 70s, you all describe it as such and others have as well as a second American revolution. What do you think were the biggest wins of that era and the biggest shortcomings? I was actually thinking about um, when we were talking about Stonewall, you know, with Pride, you have all these corporations saw Raytheon put up their like rainbow flag, et cetera, et cetera. And so some of these things, like in a way, that's a sign of progress that even the most sort of status quo symbols of American imperial power can adopt at least the the rhetoric and some of the policy around inclusivity, but it also shows how far we have to go in terms of transforming America. I was w- wondering if you could reflect on some of that. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the Raytheon thing. My um, my twenty uh, one year old gay daughter really really hates really hates <laughs> Raytheon's uh, <laughs> support of of, <laughs> of her people. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, look, I do think that the um, you know, the gay rights movement, the 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 um, expansion of our notions of um, um, sexual and gender identity are are you know real palpable accomplishments that make people's lives better because they have an opportunity to um, to 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 be true to themselves in a in a way that they and, and in a public way um, that they uh, did not before these movements and so um, that I, I mean I think that's one of the great accomplishments and as 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 the parent of a you know a lesbian daughter I I, I feel that all the time um, and 
and feminism, you know, the, the women's liberation movement. I think, you know, we are living in, in to a great extent, we're living in, in, in the world that it created. Um, we have a lot of battles that are strangely uh, still being fought, particularly and astonishingly to me over abortion and even contraception. But, um, you know, uh, in terms of uh, women's access to the public sphere and, 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 um, and general autonomy in many other ways, I, I think, uh, you know, in my lifetime, uh, that has changed so much. And so much of that was the result of, of, of the feminist movement. Um, and so I think in some ways, those are two of the biggest lasting changes of the 60s. I mean, you know, uh, the discovery of the environment as a, as a sphere for political organizing is obviously key. Of course, the civil rights movement and all of its repercussions. And in some ways, the civil rights movement was, you know, the, the crucible of all of this. I mean, all of these, so many of the people that we wrote about in all of the movements and the farm workers movement and the gay rights movement and feminism, you know, cut their teeth, learned to um, learn to feel comfortable defying the law, learn to organize um, through the civil rights movement, um, you know, what white organizers as, as, as an activist as well as black. So, um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we're, we're, <laughs> We're still struggling over all the things we've been talking about, and 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 even arguing as a country over, um, you know, what 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 we can say about slavery, what truths we can tell about slavery in classrooms and so on. But um, we've we've um, you know we we are also living in the world that the civil rights movement is still resounding in. So um, so I, I I mean I I feel like I don't want to as David was saying earlier, I don't want to sugarcoat anything, but I, I think the accomplishments of this movement are, are of that social justice movement that we write about are, are, are real um, and um, worth, uh, you know, celebrating. All right, David, I want to ask you some about Devil's Chessboard, which everybody should read, must read. Absolutely eye-opening about um, history of the CIA, Alan Dulles, as I think you would have to argue one of the greatest villains in American history, and what really happened in the assassination of uh, JFK. But um, if you could, David, just lay out for us a little bit of that history of the CIA and Alan Dulles's role and what that age agency has been all about, which is a gigantic question, but I, tr I trust in your ability to break it down in the, the relevant pieces. Yeah, well, in some ways, it's the flip side of the, uh, our current book. Um, I've been uh, uh, obsessed with understanding American power for most of my life as a journalist. Um, and this book, in some ways, I put everything I had learned and all the research uh, I'd accrued over the years into this book is a book trying to understand what went wrong with our country. Uh, not just about Alan Dulles, who's head of the CIA during the Cold War and really the most formative figure in American intelligence, but really the people that he represented, which on Wall Street, uh, where he came from as a lawyer, and the military industrial complex, where he had so many uh, close associates. Um, why America became so uh, committed to a path of violence, uh, overthrowing foreign governments, uh, killing foreign leaders, uh, and so on, to, to impose its imperial will, as you were saying, on the rest of the world. And so uh, 
the devil's chessboard attempts to understand that and tell that story in as compelling a way as I could. Because I have a, uh, a uh, saying when it comes to these competing views of history, the best story will win. And so I think my book does offer one very compelling narrative about what went wrong with America and how we went to the dark, dark side. Now, there were, like Game of Thrones, other dynasties who were opposed to the Dulles dynasty. And of course, it wasn't just Alan. His brother, John Foster Dulles, was head of the uh, State Department under Eisenhower. In many ways, the Eisenhower presidency outsourced uh, everything to the Dulles brothers, when uh, mm. overseas at least. Uh, but there were these dynasties that were opposed, just like the Game of Thrones, um, the uh, uh, FDR, the Roosevelt dynasty. And that one was really uh, winning at the time until of course, tragically, FDR died in the final days of World War II. Um, the Kennedy dynasty, uh, uh, you know, Dulles dynasty was aligned with the Rockefeller brothers with, financially and politically, which gave them a lot of clout too. So I see America as kind of, um, you know, it's a battle for the American soul between these competing factions, between these competing power groups within American society during the Cold War years that I focused on. And unfortunately, the bad guys won. Uh, and I think it's the best story that has not been told because we'll never get the story in PBS. We'll never get the story from Ken Burns. We'll never get the story from the kind of establishment historians. But yet, I think that's why my book has become, despite the fact, by the way, that the Washington Post and the New York Times refused to even review my book, to acknowledge hmm. it. Uh, for political reasons. My publicist was told by the Washington Post book editor, we're, we're not going to touch this with the 10-foot pole. Hmm. And the reason why, I think, uh, partly was is because the corporate media was part of the U.S. intelligence and, U and U.S. national security operation. Uh, the heads of those media companies at the New York Times, the Washington Post, Newsweek, uh, Time, CBS, all down the line, were very close on personal terms with Alan Dulles and other uh, national security chiefs. Uh, they dined with them. They went to the same parties. Uh, their kids went to the same colleges. They're all part of what C. Wright Mills, the great sociologist later, called the power elite. So um, there's a reason why, uh, you know, that even today on MSNBC, you see one talking head after the next, people from the FBI, from uh, various national security agencies. It's a parade of people who all have the same perspective on U.S. power and the, and the rest of the world. And uh, where, are this, where are the dissenting voices? These are the liberal channels, supposedly. Where is Noam Chomsky by, and others like him? Uh, so my book uh, did not get reviewed, uh, and yet it was a bestseller. It was a New York Times bestseller, despite mm -hmm. uh, the fact that it was, I think, dropped down a black hole by the media. And I'm very proud of that. So let's not sugarcoat it. Did Dulles kill JFK? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, in a word. <laughs> It took me 600 pages to make the case in Devil's Chessboard, but that's what I essentially said. Now, it wasn't Alan Dulles operating on his own. He didn't operate that way. Uh, but I think a decision was made within the power lead, as I say, that Kennedy had to go because Kennedy was breaking uh, the Cold War consensus. He was uh, worried to death, as the brother Ted Kennedy, his speechwriter Ted Sorensen and others told me, his main fear, the reason, the main reason he ran for president, he said, was because he thought 
thought there would be, as a student of history, JFK, that there would be an uh, accidental nuclear war. And of course, there almost was during his watch during the uh, October missile crisis uh, over Cuba in 1962. And if there had been a President Nixon instead of a President Kennedy, we might have had a nuclear war. I remember my dad coming home, and Margaret's maybe too young to remember this. Uh, she was very young at the time. She, I think you were only one year old, Margaret. But my dad coming home in 1962 and saying, well, kids, that might be it. We might not survive another day because there was a nuclear war going to happen over Cuba. And so that's how dangerous and fraught I think the Cold War was. And I think Kennedy knew that and was trying to, I think, lead uh, a way, a path away from that kind of uh, brinksmanship that the Dulles brothers stood for. He had back channels to Moscow, to Premier Khrushchev in Russia, and to Fidel Castro in, in Cuba. The CIA, the CIA was aware of this, thought that Kennedy was basically a traitor. He, he delivered a, a, a so-called peace speech at American University in the uh, spring of 1963. And Robert McNamara, former defense secretary, told me that everybody, everybody, every American today should read the speech, the peace speech. And in the speech, Kennedy talks about Russians, who are supposed to be our mortal enemy, as fellow human beings on the planet. We all breathe the same air, he said. We all cherish our children's lives. And none of us wanted to go to nuclear war. That's what he said in this peace speech. So um, he was seen, I think, as, uh, as a real maverick uh, by these people who were in charge for national security. They felt that he was off the reservation, that he was a threat to American security, and had to, he had to go. And I think uh, that's what happened to President Kennedy. Some of the pushback is, well, Kennedy had not, wasn't actually that radical. He hadn't actually done anything that significant yet. Sure, he said he was going to, whatever his quote was, smash the CIA into a million pieces, but he'd mostly left the existing power structure in place. Just lay out some of the, the evidence that you find that um, Alan Dulles and other CIA operatives were involved well, he decapitated the CIA. He uh, uh, not only fired Alan Dulles, he fired his top aides. Uh, he didn't go deep enough, that's true. Uh, and Alan Dulles promptly went home to Georgetown, where he lived, and continued as if he were still CIA chief. It's amazing, I think, ama uh, amazingly traitorous act. The guy who Kennedy installed the CIA, McCone, John McCone, was a, basically a, a Republican businessman who knew nothing about the true CIA network and never was really in charge of that agency. I think Alan Dulles continued to run it with the help of uh, James Angleton and Richard Helms, who were, the, of course, two top deputies at the uh, agency, and uh, they reported to him as if he still were a CIA director. Uh, Kennedy was not uh, a Cold Warrior. No, I think that's uh, disinformation, and I think that has become sort of uh, an accepted uh, line within uh, establishment history, and it's very wrong. And in fact, because of my book, I think, and some other uh, revisionist histories, uh, even some mainstream history historians like Robert Dalek uh, have come around to our point of view. Can the Kennedy presidency was at war with itself. It fractured over the Cold War. Uh, there's no doubt if you read the documents, if you go back, as I did, I interviewed over 250 former Kennedy officials from Robert McNamara on down uh, and members of the family and, and, and so on. And they all knew this. The Kennedy presidency fractured, and it fractured over the Cold War. 
uh, you know, as I said, President Kennedy was trying to pursue detente with the Soviet Union and with Cuba, and uh, the CIA, uh, the Defense Department, thought this was traitorous. Uh, the top generals, the Joint Chiefs, the CIA felt that you know, when you see their uh, unexpurgated interviews or all histories of these men, they hated Kennedy. They hated him with a purple passion. Uh, Dan Ellsberg, who was a young uh, consultant uh, in the Pentagon at the time, later, of course, was the great uh, hero, Pentagon Papers, a whistleblower. Dan Ellsberg told me that the feeling within the Air Force where he was consulting at the time against Kennedy, particularly after he peacefully resolved the October missile crisis in 1962 around Cuba, uh, was, was again, traitorous. Just, uh, mm-hmm. again, a purple hatred for him. So the idea that somehow the Kennedy was a, a cold warrior and was, was just another, um, you know, hawk like the, the others is complete, uh, completely wrong and i have to say it's uh that that view is held by some people i have great respect for like noam chomsky by the way some left historians misread kennedy as well but i've done the research they haven't uh, i spent years studying this the documents interviewing people who were there who made that policy and uh, i know for a fact that my point of view on this is the correct one i guess my question is how deep does the rot go? Like we're just discussing the CIA and the FBI, CIA overthrowing small D democratic governments all over the world, FBI infiltrating and surveilling all of these activist movements. Um, How deep does the rot go? Is this their primary function? So in other words, is like the whole deep state idea kind of true? Um. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like, you know, where I see the 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 rod, if you want to call it that, or the the um, the the obstructions to kind of American democracy uh, being as truly democratic as it can be right now is in um, the Republican Party's campaign against voter access uh, against voting, uh, which is the essence of our democracy. Um, I give so much credit to Stacey Abrams for, uh, and the many other people who are organizing around this issue. Um, and, um, to me that, that shows such an open contempt for, um, for this, this, this basic, um, right, this basic building block of our democracy. So I, I, I feel like that's where a lot of my, uh, um, strongest feelings around around you know potential rot of american democracy are, are focused right now but um david has a more has a, has a historic perspective on it historical perspective on it that that, that uh may be a little different or, yeah yeah david david what do you think well i go back to ancient greece is uh, that's pretty historical um in fact, I, I, I did a lot of reading by Greece as I was working on the devil's chessboard. I think Amer- I think democracy as an institution has always been very fragile, no matter what society, no matter what period of time we're looking at. Uh, from ancient Greece on, when there were militarists, there were authoritarian types, there were oligarchs who always wanted to suppress uh, democracy. And of course, we know democracy was only for men and free men, not slaves. 
uh, into ancient Greece as well. Uh, so there's always been a battle to extend voting rights. And as Margaret said today, that's still a battle. Um, and the Republicans and I think the corporate interests behind the Republicans are still trying to deny full democracy and will always be fighting it. And our children will always have to fight for it, unfortunately. Now, in terms of a deep state, I do think that's one element that tries to suppress democracy historically within the U.S. But as I was saying, there's no way to talk about a deep state anymore. It fragmented if there ever was a deep state. And I think there was a power lead or a deep state, whatever you want to call it, that's been operating in America historically. But uh, after 9-11 particularly, it metastasized wildly uh, many different agencies, thousands of different people with security clearances throughout America. Uh, it's no longer, I think, the monolith might have been under Alan Dulles. Um, in fact, uh, one you know uh, faction of the deep state opposed Donald Trump during his presidency, tried to bring him down. And I think uh, lefties like us were cheering them on, that part of the deep state, while another deep part of the deep state supported him uh, because essentially he was giving carte blanche to the CIA and the Pentagon to let them do whatever they wanted around the world. So, um, you know, I think it's uh, a, an ongoing question whether the deep state, uh, there is such a thing as one deep state. I don't believe it is monolithic. I believe, as I say, it's a number of fragmented power centers now. Uh, and, and to what extent they're lined uh, up uh, and, and to support American democracy and to what extent they're uh, an enemy of American democracy. I think that's an ongoing question. Yeah. And David, finally, you're, um, you know, part of the media. You've been an incredible journalist, founded Salon. Um, how dangerous is it that some of these deep state actors have become they've been elevated by, quote unquote, liberal networks? They've become celebrated within a lot of liberal circles. What have you made of that development? Yeah, when I started Salon, I thought, you know, there'd be a thousand different salons, independent uh, media outlets that had professional newsrooms. Uh, and now I see us as more of a kind of an anomaly. Uh, the inmates were running the asylum for years at Salon. The corporate people, our investors, uh, you know, the suits, they didn't know what to make of us. And they did they thought the World Wide Web was some kind of international tennis tournament at the time. Mm. So we got in early enough, I think, where we really kind of reinvented journalism. And for about 10 years, we had the run of uh, really the, the place. Amazon tried to buy us. The New York Times tried to buy us. Time Warner tried to buy us. But we stayed independent. And we thought, as I said, that there would be a thousand flowers like us blooming in the garden of, uh, of the media world. But uh, the corporate media moved in pretty quickly to colonize uh, digital media. And uh, today, as you say, Crystal, every day is a, a different parade of the same sort of talking heads on MSNBC and CNN and so forth. The diversity, I think, of opinion and news in this country, everyone keeps, you know, uh, celebrating and saying, oh, it's amazing how full it is, is actually pretty narrow still. And uh, the number of voices like ours, frankly, that get, uh, you know, 
on TV is is still, I think, frustratingly limited. So uh, thank God for your shows like your own, uh, the two of you. Thank you for having us on. And, uh, you know, I think America needs uh, to have as wide a range of opinion and news as possible. And uh, we're siloed for the most part within our small sort of, uh, you know, uh, echo chambers. And I think that's not for the good of American democracy. Completely agree with all of that. Although encouragingly, some of those independent spaces have been growing as of late. I'm so great to have both of you. Super grateful. The book is By the Light of Burning Dreams right there. Kyle's got it for you. Um, Everybody check it out for sure. The book on the CIA and Alan Dulles is The Devil's Chessboard. Both are must-reads. Appreciate you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Our pleasure. So that was awesome. Um, I just want to remind everybody real quick. So we have the book By the Light of Burning Dreams. I know that sounds like a soap opera-y title. Seriously, it sounds <laughs> it like some does. shit. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> but I, I just want to let everybody know it's actually a great book. And it's about, you know, left-wing movements and the history and what everybody's approach was, what their tactics were. Yeah. And so it's actually really great. And the title does it a disservice, in my opinion. Um, it, they could have been titled something else, in which case I think they would have sold a hell of a lot more. But everybody definitely check this book out. <laughs> and the other one that we were talking about at the end there a little bit is The Devil's Chessboard. Yeah. Which is about the CIA, history of the CIA, Alan Dulles. I mean, this is a guy who not only did he potentially kill JFK, but he also was in bed with the Nazis. Um, and you know, they viewed the Soviet Union and communism as a greater threat. Yeah. So just terrible across the board. Anyway, the book, sorry, go ahead. Uh, Devil Chessboard is like, look, I already hated the CIA and I already knew some of the history. Right. But reading this book, I'm like, holy shit, it's way worse. It's way more evil than even I thought before can, I can went I into say, it. <laughs> let me just say real quick. So I I've always cared like just as much about foreign policy as I have about domestic economic policy because I, you know, what one of the main, excuse me, intellectual influence on me was Noam Chomsky. Right. And Noam Chomsky's big on foreign policy. So I always cared about it deeply. And the Iraq war, of course, got me in, involved in politics more or less. Um, but I got the sense that you definitely cared more about the economic stuff. But when you read this book, you then turned around and we were talking about it. And I was like, Oh, she now cares just as much about foreign oh, policy. Oh, it's it's because you didn't like yeah you didn't realize the extent of like oh it's all nefarious. Well, it's just like ev- like I said even evil. more evil. And you talk about like a nefarious cabal, right? It's, like, yeah, literally the case. Don't say that right. word or else you believe literally. in QAnon. <laughs> right now I'm Q curious. Yeah, you got accused of that. Very silly for using the word cabal. The literal definition of cabal is like what Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles, who are both still lionized Ugh. by many in this town. The Dulles airport. airport Dulles named airport. for John Foster Dulles, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, David says that the Eisenhower administration basically outsourced the entire administration of these two brothers. And I don't think that that's an overstatement. And mm. he even realized at the end that he had created and enabled a completely rogue agency that was doing things that he didn't sanction, that he didn't know about, that he didn't want done. Right. Um, and that all continued. And like you were saying, Alan Dulles and the others in his general sort of sphere of influence and who shared this way of looking at the world, look for them, fascism, Nazis. This wasn't a real threat to 
business interest. So this wasn't really a problem for them. They were happy to sort of, they would always downplay. And you can see in the in the reporting of the New York Times, even at the time, they would parrot this line as well. They downplay the threat of Hitler, yeah. downplay what was happening mm-hmm. there until there was just absolutely no denying. And even before the war had ended, Alan Dulles is saying essentially like, we know that the real enemy is the Soviet Union. Why? Well, just follow the money, right? Because communism and nationalizing industries and these sorts of things are an actual threat to business interests. And so that's what undergirds the entire Cold War mentality. And then David tracks when JFK is elected and, and there's just this, you know, absolute conflict between the the Dulleses and that that way of thinking about the Cold War and and the business interests and all of that, and JFK who realizes that the CIA is just like doing whatever the hell they want to do things that he doesn't want them actions that he doesn't want them to take and so that's sort of the motive that leads to what he argues is the murder and assassination of JFK. So right, juicy stuff. Everybody needs to check very out very juicy stuff and yeah. also fascinating to hear him talk about the way the media was like, nope. Not going to review it. Not going to talk about it. Like, just it's we're not going to touch it with the ten foot pole. And then it still becomes a New York Times bestseller, which is an yeah. amazing. You know, it's commentary. Funny. I think that the media angle of this is interesting because I, I think probably in the past there was a very overt connection where you had literal CIA people planted in the media. But now I actually think it's more like a cult of thought where they only hire the people who are sufficiently deferential to the FBI and the CIA and like they view them as legitimate institutions with honorable people. And so you don't even necessarily need, they might have still have some CIA or FBI plants in the news agencies, but you don't even really need it because it's just like they only hired the suckers who are going to parrot whatever they say anyway. You know what I mean? It works just like all other parts of journalism. Um, Reporters rise through the ranks based on, you know, the access that they have to these powerful figures. So that the more willing you're, you are to just sort of like serve as a stenographer mm-hmm. for the That's CIA right. or the FBI, the more they're going to come to you and the more you rise up the ranks. So it doesn't operate any differently than any other part of journalism. It just sometimes is is even more blatant. I mean, how many stories over the past four years that we were told multiple anonymous sources and all of these news agencies report it as if it's fact. And then maybe a month later, we find out like, man, eh, that was you were you were be, being totally lied to. Yep. And this is just complete bullshit. But nobody ever pays a price for that. That's right. Oh, you, you do, get promoted. You, you get do, promoted. You do pay a price for not having those sources and not having that access. So that's how you end up with all of these people who are just stenographers to power and why it's so unusual to have people like Ken Klippenstein, for example, who actually breaks news um, from the rank and file members of these agencies, oftentimes who leak to him um, and he doesn't just sort of like serve as a stenographer to power. So anyway, fascinating book. David's fascinating. Margaret's interesting, too. I mean, it was kind of interesting to watch their dynamic because he cl- he's like an unreconstructed radical. Right. Was talking about the militant actions that he took, you know, um, yeah, he lost me a little bit on the police station thing because that's a little too far. And that definitely was one of the reasons why support for BLM tanked. I don't know that I agree with you on that, because do you remember at the time, I think you covered this poll, too, 
a majority of Americans supported that action. That was very early. Very, yeah, I promise you. Look it up. Promise you. When that majority happened, of Americans that was supported like, burning down a police station? Yes, I, I 100% tell, I okay. promise right. you. We, right. At that time, because that was at the very beginning and the emotions were so incredibly raw. And I remember looking at that poll and being like, holy shit, this is not what yeah, I expected what to come out of Yeah, but what happened thereafter? But as it continued, then, of course, the right-wing backlash comes in. So I don't know. No, it's not. Hold on. Hold on. Yeah. It's not just the right-wing backlash. You have to give some agency to the actual movements. And if their support tanked, it's also on them. Yeah. I, it's not just endless Fox News bashing. It's also they're not doing a good enough job of making their case if their shit goes from like 80% to 30%. Sure. But the, and these things are go hand in glove, right? Like they gave the ammunition to the conservative media and to politicians who don't want to see any change happen ultimately to sort of discredit this move. I mean, it really is, it's sad. And you look at the New York City mayoral race right now as an example, it's like, you know, we had this largest protest movement in history, and now you're about to elect probably, um, you know, a very moderate candidate, right-wing candidate, you might even say an Eric Adams, who was, um, who's, you know, aggressively in favor of more policing, yeah, sort of like going backwards on those issues. I think we have a disagreement on this because I definitely blame the left candidates for that, without a doubt. It's How's their so? fucking fault. Because they're out there, you know, you got people who are part of these campaigns who are like defund the police at a time when there's historic crime spiking in New York City. That's just fucking stupid. Of course, people aren't going to vote for you in the middle. If you say that in the middle of a historic crime spike, you're not actually addressing what the people want. You can be in favor of all the fucking police reforms in the world. I am in favor of them. But you have to have enough common sense to realize in the middle of a crime spike, you can't go out there and argue for defunding the police. Yeah, the left has to have some answer that makes sense to people about rising crime or else, I mean... And they don't. And, and they, they don't. don't. And, and that, you saw what happened with, what's her name, the one whose campaign totally imploded and her... Oh, Diane Morales. Staffers trying but to unionize like three minutes before the election. And Well, and this is the other... I mean, that whole thing was just a total mess. But it is... It's very sad to see that after the largest protest movement in history... There have been changes on the local level, but literally nothing has changed at the federal That's level. That's totally true. Not a single thing. And Biden has completely walked away from any of the pledges that he made. Even his police oversight commission, which is like kind of a you total know, bullshit, bullshit yeah, stop anyway, he walks away from. And so you can't, you know, you can't look at that and not say, OK, there, there must have been some failures of leadership there. I want to go back real quick to the question of political violence before we wrap it up, um, because I brought up two different points, and they are contradictory to some extent. One is the South Africa example, where you did have the good cop and the bad cop. Mandela was ser serving as the, like, you know, mm -hmm. I'm above the fray, reasonable one who you can deal with. Uh, and then you did have people in the streets who were rioting and burning shit down. And so there was violence and there was nonviolence. And that dynamic effectively worked in the long run. But then I also brought up the civil rights example. Now, he was sort of dismissive of the civil rights example, but I have the study right here. I remember covering this. Um, this is in the Harvard Gazette. The name of the researcher is Erica Chenoweth. And she actually originally was militant and she was in favor of certain forms of violence. And then when she studied it and it's like three over 300 examples of this uh, sort of stuff. And she found that, no, actually, nonviolence works a lot better. And the reasoning um, that she gave when you look at the civil rights movement, again, just to reiterate it, what happened was you had these people who were 
very vocal about how peaceful they are and how pacifist they are. And they said, it's a, we're anti-violent as a matter of principle. So what that means is it's the turn the other cheek idea. It's the Jesus idea. Mm -hmm. So, oh, you're going to hit me on this side? Okay, hit me on this side too. Go for it. And what happened was when you had the racist Alabama sheriffs sick the dogs on them and turn the hoses on them and they were getting violent, moderate, regular uh, white Americans turned on the racist white Southerners. And so then when you had this giant sea change of public opinion, at the time, I guess public opinion mattered for something. Now we can have public opinion <laughs> in one direction. It doesn't, doesn't fucking matter. matter. Yeah. But at the time it mattered, apparently, and that helped lead to the Civil Rights Movement and the Voting Rights Act. I mean, also you have one of the most racist presidents, Lyndon Johnson, who was the one who signed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, which is a fascinating fucking weird thing in history. But anyway, so I, I myself, my point is I'm, torn on the the question of political violence mm. because if the south africa thing worked then you could argue well you needed some violence you need the malcolm x to the mlk right but if this research is true then it is also possible in a principled way as long as you're willing to get your ass beat then nonviolence could actually work is this the david shore the the study he shared and got canceled for is it that yes one? Er erica <laughs> chenoweth is the one the difference is i don't give a fuck about getting canceled i believe academic research whether or not people yell at me on twitter go fuck yourself yell at me on twitter or, i don't give a fuck people not. yell at me 24/7 i don't even read it who cares so I think there's there's two different questions here and something that that you're always very good at separating out and analyzing. There's the question of principle. Like right. is mm -hmm. it morally justified? Yep. Is and and David raised some of those examples too, like the penicillin example he talked about. And like, are these tactics in certain instances like put aside whether it was a smart tactic or not, um, was it morally justified right. to yeah. burn that police station to the ground, mm -hmm. for example? I would say yes. Frankly, I would say yes. Um, on other examples, maybe it's a little squishier. But so there's there's like the question of the actual morality of it. And then what you're getting to is this strategic. Does it empirically work or not? Does it yeah. work? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you have to answer both of those questions in the affirmative before there's an action taken. And so. So what would you say as the answer to those questions? Because that's the whole well, meat of the conversation. I, I just think it really depends. I mean, like I said, in the specific example of the police station being burned to the ground of the this, you know, racist police station that murdered George Floyd and, you know, the other officers stood by and watched. Yeah, I think that's I, justified. Do I actually I think wasn't it was referring to that specific thing. I was on the principle. I was wondering. So is the violence is OK? That's what I'm saying. Is, it depends. On oh, the, it always depends. OK. You have to the context and all of those things. Yeah. I don't think that there's any easy answer to just be like, yes, it's justified or no, it's not justified. Well, Just so you know, they abandoned that building because they expected them to burn it. That was they did that on purpose. The cops were like, let's let them burn this. Yeah. Seriously. That's yeah, what happened. I, I know that sounds crazy, but that is literally what happened. But to answer the questions myself, um, the empirically both of them worked. Apartheid South Africa worked, and it worked to be totally nonviolent and pacifist in the civil rights movement. Both of them worked. So I think you can make a case for either one. But on principle, I'm more comfortable with the nonviolence. And I'm sort of agnostic. On the violence, there I think it really depends what kind of violence you're talking about. Obviously, obviously, property violence is way less serious mm -hmm. than than violence than against act, people. Right. And again, everybody knows the only time I'm in favor of violence against people is for imminent self-defense. So anyway, that's my thing on political violence. Yeah, I I'd have to think about individual scenarios because I just don't think it's that. I don't. In my view, it's not quite so cut and dry because. Obviously, clearly, it's not cut and dry. Yeah, I even mean, even me, who I think in a very cut and dry way, even yeah, for me, it's not it's, cut and dry. It's, it's very complex and complicated. Exactly. I mean, going back again to that case that David was talking about with like supplying the penicillin, and now you're saving these soldiers' lives, but then they're killing probably American troops. Right. 
it's, you know. Or the Chomsky example. It's very messy. That Chomsky example, when I heard that, I was like, yeah, it does seem like the moral thing to do. If you yeah. have all these things, so you have these right. these drones, let's say, which you know are going to be used, uh, you know, in the Middle East or wherever. And we know that under Obama, it was a 90% civilian death rate. We don't know the civilian death rate under Trump, but we do know he massively increased the number of bombings. And I'm going to guess it's roughly the same, right? I mean, I don't yeah. think he's that much. He obviously, he got rid of whatever guardrails Obama had there, he even got rid of those. So it right. might even be worse, right? So right. you see these drones, nobody's going to get hurt. You know what they're going to go be used for. What if you just fucking took them and dump them in a river or some shit? Doesn't that seem like the moral thing to do? Yeah. Well, and here's what I will that's say. Property violence is what that yeah. is. That's, that's property violence. What I will say definitively, which is that um, I think it's a very common view to give a pass to state violence. Yes. Oh, you're so right about and that. And overwhelmingly judge and condemn, you know, activist violence and at least those two things should be put in a, and evaluated on an equal pay, playing field. Yeah, no, the point you just made is brilliant, number one. Number two, it is maddening how bad it is because yeah. this, not you know, a little while ago, the Ilhan Omar thing happened. Right. And remember, you know, she basically said, um, yeah, the United States has done crimes against humanity and unspeakable atrocities, just as Israel has, just as Hamas has, just as the Taliban has. And the whole world rained holy hell on her. Yeah. She came out and clarified and was like, no, I'm not saying they're literally exactly the same. I'm just saying the beep, 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 beep. And I'm watching the whole thing going, you're fucking right. You're fucking right. Because listen, again, 90% civilian drone death rate, war in Iraq, which killed a minimum 200,000 innocent civilians, Guantanamo Bay, torture, Abu Ghraib torture. This is torture. Now we know as a matter of fact that the overwhelming majority of people who were tortured were innocent. Not even that it would matter if they're guilty because it's still against the law, against U.S. law and international law. But like, yeah, we fucking did it. Yeah, we had the intent. What, did we not have the intent to kill civilians when we bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Of course we had the fucking intent to kill civilians. So you're killing civilians and it is for a political or religious reason. The definition of that is terrorism. I'm not making it up. Kyle Klinsky didn't make that up. That's the fucking textbook definition of it. That's what the fuck it is. So, yes, when you look at that, you say, of course it's violence. Of course it's terrorism. But to your point, everybody pulls up short. Even the good, the good liberals, right? The good liberal Democrats, even some lefties. They go right up to the line. Oh, I, don't, I don't know if that violence is the same because of this old Sam Harris argument of intentions. Our intentions are so wonderful and benign, mm. so it's different. Mm. No, it's fucking not different. And I've made this argument before. Yes, manslaughter and murder is different, right? Of yeah. course, murder is worse than manslaughter. That's codified into law. But what if somebody leaves their house on Monday, drives their car, they kill somebody with their car. Then on Tuesday, they get in their car, they drive and they kill two more people with their car. Then on Wednesday, they kill five more people. Then on Thursday, they kill 10 people with their car. And the entire time they're going, it's manslaughter. I didn't mean to do any of it. It's just happening over and over and over and over and over. Fuck out of here. That's just as bad as murder, if not worse. Well, also, let's not pretend like our intentions have been amazing. <laughs> I'm saying, but my point is, even if you, <laughs> even even if if you grant that, it still doesn't matter because you keep doing yeah. it a thousand fucking times over. But there's just such a, there's just such a blind spot, whether it's U.S. government sanctioned violence or police violence or Israeli violence, Israeli or state Israel, violence. Any of that is just doesn't count. I it's, mean, you think about even in this conversation that we just had, you and me and Margaret and David talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. We were talking about the the justification and is it moral and the tactical considerations of property violence and actual violence among those protesters. But left unsaid was the fact that the police were wildly 
wildly more violent Granted, than than the protest. To be fair, we didn't mention that because we thought it was so obvious, obvious. it didn't bear yeah, it's repeating. Like, but you're right; it should yeah. be actually repeated. Yes. Indeed. Anyway, that was a, it. Was a wonderful conversation. Everybody needs to check out these books; they're great. Yeah. Um, if you are listening to this through audio, I don't know what you're doing with your life. You need to go to Substack and pay the five dollars a month and get the video. Crystal's wearing a lovely dress today. Thank you. Her so eyes look. Great. They're this beautiful honey honey <laughs> color. Whatever eye makeup she's wearing is showing like the honey color in her eyes. Thank you, sir. You don't want to miss this. Like, what are you, silly? Obviously, I'm sexy as fuck. You also look lovely Everybody today. knows that. I got a piss yellow shirt on. Uh, it's, it's not, it's buttercup. Yeah, a little lighter than piss. But it's anyway, buttercup. you know you want to see this. Of course you want to see this. Um, and remember, for this podcast, we take zero dollars and zero cents from advertisers. And Crystal and I had this conversation when we launched the podcast. And, um... You know, we said to each other, we're only going to make like 25% or at most 50% of what we could make because a podcast that's our size, top 20 podcasts in the world, advertisers just throw money at your fucking face. Yeah. They're like, here, we're just going to give you money for existing. Her and I both said, no, we want to build something better. We want to build something more pure. We want to build something new. And so we're only going to do the small dollar donations, $5 at a time. So anyway, that's my long way of saying, if you support the show, if you like listening to this or viewing this, please do us a favor and pay the $5 on Substack and get the video. And by the way, the real perk is not only do you get the video, you get it a day earlier than the audio. So it's always nice to get it immediately when it comes out. Yep. You're the first. Yes, exactly. So anyway, and by the way. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit jealous about you and Sagar with breaking points. So they they launch it and like it immediately blow. It's literally number one (laughs) podcast like in in politics in the world, (laughs) you know, immediately leapfrogs all of our metrics for Crystal Kyle and friends. Now, yes. Okay. We do it once a week. They do it three times. I don't give a fuck like that. I was jealous. I was like, this is bullshit. And how can they just come out of nowhere on the first day and destroy our shit? And so I was sort of salty at that. So anyway, Take the side of Team Kyle and help a brother out and get us up there in the numbers. So that means send this to all your friends, send this to your grandma. I don't even care if your grandma listens. Like drive to her house and then press play on the shit and then walk out just so we can get the <laughs> thing. Still that get says, the download. Right, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I but don't get me wrong, I'm very happy for you and Sagar, and of course sure you are. I love you guys. No, I am. Well, I'm, I'm very happy for you. But I To be real though, for real. Mm-hmm. Finally, I will actually be I have been and can actually promote what we're doing here with breaking points and what I'm doing. So whereas you guys know at the Hill, I was prohibited from saying a word about the fact that this podcast even existed. You have, that's a good thing for all of us. That is true. You have no idea. The seething anger I had inside of me directed at the Hill. I, as I a result do, of it. No, no, no. You've only idea. seen 10% of it. <laughs> the fact that we started a podcast and the whole point of the podcast is it's got to be grassroots. It's got to be small dollar listener funded. Yeah. And, and I then can't even talk about on it. day fucking one, they tell us, by the way, Crystal is not allowed to even mention it to the, the audience. And by the way, her audience is even bigger than your audience. So that means more than 50% of the people who are going to be a part of this thing are now no longer a part of this thing. And you're not allowed to come on Rising And I'm not allowed anymore. to come on Rising Game. Like, what the fuck are you talking? Are you fucking kidding me? Are you kidding me? Anyway, those days are over. Happy days are here again. I'm going to dwell on that shit now, and I'm pissed off again. <laughs> <laughs> you bring up some shit that makes you yourself angry exactly. and upset. That's a very Kyle Good work thing. on that. Anyway, all right, guys, we love you, and we'll talk to you soon. See you guys. Bye.